This morning, dear friends, we are beginning a new sermon series in the book of Isaiah. When uh, I shared with some of you that our next sermon series would be the book of Isaiah, um, you, I wish you could see some of the, the faces I got back uh, as a response to that, specifically because we just finished preaching through Titus, and uh, it took us 18 sermons to preach through three chapters of Titus. It took, at some point, uh, two or three sermons to preach through one verse. So, uh, on, the, on the backdrop of that, hearing the news that we will be preaching through the book of Isaiah, I wonder if some of you thought, well, he probably will be preaching through in, in Isaiah until he retires. Well, no, we will not go at the same speed um, through the book of Isaiah as we have gone through the book of Titus. Although, as uh, I looked in the history of the church, uh, John Calvin did preach through Isaiah and preached 342 sermons. Long book, long series. I don't know exactly how many, how many weeks it'll take us to go through Isaiah, uh, but we will take a, a, a quicker view, I promise you that. It will not be more than, uh, more than 100 sermons. That I am pretty sure I can promise you. Besides that, don't ask me for more specific things. But uh, why are we looking at Isaiah? Why, why look at this Old Testament book? Uh, in a particular way, uh, the book of Isaiah has been considered by some to be like the Romans of the Old Testament. The Romans of the Old Testament. The book of Isaiah is the first who introduces uh, us into the, uh, to the notion or the category of the gospel. The first time the word gospel or good news appears in the Bible, is in the book of Isaiah. So if we are the people who are centered upon the gospel, we want to look back at the book that first introduced this concept. Um, the book of Isaiah. Remember, remember when Jesus was one time uh, preaching in the synagogue in Nazareth? It was actually the first time he preached in his own synagogue, in his own town after he began his public ministry. And, uh, and the scripture, the gospels tell us that he was given a scroll to read, and he read the passage that came to be read that particular morning. He read it, he closed it up, he gave it back, and his words were this. Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And what was the scripture that he read? The book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is so, so important that we will start working through, our, and, and working through it as a congregation. At times, we'll go very fast, covering several chapters in one sermon. Uh, there'll be other times when we'll go slow through it because of the, of the richness that happens in particular passages. But this morning, I would like for us to look at this passage, uh, at this book, by working our way through the first 20 verses of this book. So I encourage you to invite you to open uh, your Bible, I invite you to open your, your scripture to the book of Isaiah, chapter 1. I'll be reading from verse uh, 1 to verse 20. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, we encourage you to uh, grab a Bible provided in the chair in front of you. You may find this on page number 566. Here's the word of the Lord for our hearts this morning, the book of Isaiah, chapter 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, king of Judah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. 
Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burnt with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate, as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord. You rulers of Sodom, give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the call of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of being of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen to you. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you bow with me in prayer? Oh God, you are a great God. And so often your people have rebelled against you. Father, as we hear your word, would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us willingness to respond? Would you give us understanding so that we may know you 
and give us your spirit so we may be enabled to respond to your truth in a way that you desire. Speak to our hearts, O Lord. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. The book of Isaiah. A magnificent book. Let me give a few historical um, notices of when and how this book happens and what it is about. Notice how this book begins in verse 1. There's a a historical marker in verse 1 of of this book. Uh, Look at verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. In other words, let me translate this for you. The ministry of Isaiah happens over four administrations. Over Judah and Jerusalem. By the time, by the time Isaiah uh, begins his ministry, uh, the, the nation of Israel is already split in two. There has been a significant civil uproar. And the ten northern tribes have their own country, if you will. And oftentimes we will meet them. They're called by the name Ephraim, or simply Israel. And then the, the Judah, the southern tribe, the two tribes of, 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 of the south, uh, they're often called as the kingdom of Judah and, and Jerusalem as the capital city. Uh, Isaiah is a prophet that, that lives in the southern kingdom, and he is prophesying. He begins his ministry at the end of a very prosperous time in the history of, of uh, Israel overall particularly of the southern kingdom. Uzziah has lived and reigned for 52 years, and the time uh, during Uzziah's reign was a time of economic prosperity. It was a time of peace. It was a time of, of sweetness. But at the same time, as, as, as the reign of Uzziah comes to an end, uh, in, in the eastern part, a, a new power begins to, to raise, to, to gain gain. Uh, resources and gain reputation and aspiration to expand and aspirations to conquer the regions around it. It's the kingdom of Assyria. They, they had aspirations to conquer all the way down to Egypt and Israel and Judah were part of that, re- part of that region that they were willing and interested to conquer. So Israel, both the northern tribes and the southern tribes, find themselves, even though at the end of a time of, of economic prosperity, there's, there starts to be anxiety of what will happen as Assyria, this major empire, begins to, to grow in threat. So in light of the political tensions of Israel and Judah, Isaiah calls on the people of God to trust not in political alliances with other neighboring nations to stand against this threat of Assyria, but to trust in God alone. And their failure to trust in God alone for the deliverance is one of the key themes that runs through the entire book of, of Isaiah. But their failure to trust in God to deliver them from this growing threat, their failure to trust in God has been preceded by a long season of rebellion against God that happened prior to this threat. Israel, uh, Isaiah started his ministry during the the reign of Uzziah. And we'll see in chapter 6, one of the famous passages of the book of Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. 
But Isaiah's ministry started prior to the death of Uzziah. To, so, to understand what was going on during the, the reign of Uzziah, we need to read another prophet. Another prophet who was, who was ministering during specifically the reign of Uzziah is the prophet Amos. As a matter of fact, Amos 1.1 says, The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. In other words, if you understand what was going on during Uzziah's reign, read Amos. Uh, king Uzziah reigned for 52 years. Yes, there was economic prosperity. The land was doing well, but behind the economic prosperity, there were hidden sins that no one noticed. Because the, law, the land was doing well economically. Behind the economic prosperity, oppression of the poor was growing. Injustice became a common practice. Bribery was, was at its home. As long as the economy was going well, no one was paying attention to the sinful ways and the, the, the sinful practices that Israel was continuing to practice. So the book of Amos calls people and challenges them with their sinful ways even while, even while the nation was doing well. Isaiah calls out, like Amos, he calls out the spiritual decay that was growing deeper and wider. And the no, this decay was not noticed because it was camouflaged behind the economic prosperity under King Uzziah. Well, friends, we might say it is easy in times of prosperity to lose sight of what could be going on beneath the surface in our lives. It is easy in times when all things go well to become silent or deaf or blind to our own ways before God. If things go well, why worry so much about our spiritual lives? We might say, we don't need as much prayer. Things are going well. My life is, 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 is going forth well. I don't need to worry about spirituality. Friends, the book of Isaiah confronts us with the, with the rottenness that was going on during the reign of King Uzziah when the country was prospering. The entire Creation is caught up in this revelation that God gives to Isaiah. The vision of Isaiah. This word, this phrase could be translated the divine revelation. The conflict that was starting to loom slowly from the east upon the land of Israel. People became anxious. This conflict that was, was growing. We might say today there's conflict that is growing uh, around the world from various nations in the East. We might be worried today about North Korea. We might be worried about the Middle East, what, what things might be happening there, Iran. And we might think, let's form alliances with other nations so we protect ourselves. It's a common, common response. But the conflict that the book of Isaiah zooms in is not the conflict between Israel and the other nations. The entire creation is caught up in this conflict. How do we know that? Because 
God, uh, God says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. This conflict that is rising, the entire creation is about to listen to what's happening. The conflict is not between Israel and the other nations, even though there was a growing threat coming up. Chapter 1 of Isaiah introduces us to the real conflict of this book. It's not the Assyrian threat, but the rebellion of God's children against their God. This is the real conflict. This is the real problem that the book of Isaiah presents. So God asks in this introductory uh, passage an important question, and the question is, why will you continue to rebel? Why will you continue to rebel? Again, remember, economic prosperity. Things are going well. No one's noticing the rebellion that's going on underneath. And God says, why will you continue to rebel? So as we look at this question, I'd like for us to look at how this passage, uh, we, could, we, could, we see four points about what God does in calling out the rebellion of his people. The first point that we see in this passage, and if you like taking notes, here's the first point that God does in this passage. The Lord exposes the rebellion of his children. We would not be surprised to hear that pagan nations rebel against God or that secular society rebels against God. But our text begins by telling us that those who rebel against God in our passage are the people of God. Verse 2, we have, verse 2 and 3, we have two illustrations. In verse 2, we have an illustration from family life. Now, God could have said very easily, my people have rebelled against me. But that's not what God does. He actually gives an illustration. He says, children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. God wants us to see this picture of family life. The point of the illustration is to capture the pain of this rebellion. This is a family rebellion. This is what makes the rebellion so painful. God has treated Israel as his children. As early as the book of Exodus, God said about Israel, my firstborn son. And God brought them out of Egypt. God redeemed them from Egypt. God cared for them. God made them into a nation. God gave them land. God pro provided for them. And it is the very people whom God reared up, it is the very people whom God brought up, that now rebel against the Lord. What makes this rebellion painful is that it is as if children rebel against their parents. Parents, you've been there? You understand the pain of seeing the, oh, the very children whom you have given birth to, whom you have reared up, whom you have provided for 10, 15, 20 years, and now they're, they turn their back against you? You feel the pain of that? God wants to tell us, the children whom I've reared up, they are the ones who rebelled against me. Then we get another illustration, this time from farm life. The realm of, of, of the farm, the ox knows its owner, the donkey knows its master's crib. Now, friends, I want you to, to, to imagine how much knowledge does an ox have? We might say not much. How, much. how much knowledge does a donkey have? Not much. But God says this much they do know. They know the one who feeds them. They know where to go home. And yet, 
my people don't know. My people don't understand. In other words, humanity, even though it was designed with this to be the crown of God's creation, endowed with knowledge and understanding, and knowledge and understanding of God, first and foremost, now God says, my people are worse than animals. I can count on the donkey. I can count on the ox to know. But I can't count on my people to know. Sometimes we might say that people rebel against God because they don't know God. The Bible challenges that answer. The biblical answer is actually the opposite. We don't know God because we have rebelled against Him. Romans 1, 21 says, Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. Now, people may have information about God, but that does not mean that they know Him or understand His ways. Our rebellion against God robs us of the knowledge of God, even if we have information about Him. Oh, friends, don't be satisfied merely with having knowledge about God or having information about Him, realize that when we take the path of rebellion, our knowledge of God is affected. God gives seven characteristics of Israel's rebellion in verse 4. And friends, we could have a whole sermon just on these seven characteristics, but notice briefly, oh or ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers. Friends, these are hard names to call out. Can you imagine? coming to church one Sunday morning and the preacher just lays it out to you. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers. But friends, it's worse than that. Imagine or recognize that when God birthed Israel, when God redeemed them from Egypt, God called them a holy nation. And now God calls them a sinful nation. God called them a special nation, a treasured possession, but now they're called a people laden with iniquity. The description of an offspring was often used of the people of Israel, in particularly with this adjective, the offspring of Abraham. But now they're called an offspring of evildoers. In other words, their rebellion has been going on generationally. What these people have done, um, that, what is it that these people have done that has called, caused God to call them by these names? Look at four actions that God just lays out before them. Here's what you have done. Children who deal corruptly. God reared them. God brought them up. And yet, they are described as children who have taken the path of corruption, secrecy, double-mindedness, telling God one thing but doing something else instead. Does that sound familiar? In their corruption, they have forsaken the Lord. God brought them out of Egypt so that He could be with them, so they could be with Him, so He could dwell in their midst. And now God said, you have forsaken the Lord. And as if that was not enough, here's another description. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. Now, God could have called Himself, they have despised God. Isaiah could have called God, God. But here, we have another phrase for God. The Holy One of Israel. It is a signature phrase in the book of Isaiah. It shows up about 28 times. Why this particular phrase? 
to describe God because he wants to point out that God is holy. He is the Holy One. But he's not the Holy One in and of himself. He's the Holy One of Israel. In other words, he wants to be Israel's holy God so that Israel would be like him as well. But in light of all that, Israel, instead of embracing that, what do they do? They have despised the Holy One of Israel. Through their actions, they have despised God's leadership over them, even while on the surface, their religious festivals were going on. If you had visited Israel during the time of Uzziah, friends, if you have visited their assemblies, you would have seen rich, bountiful, sacrificial system uh, rituals and, and, and assemblies. People would gather. There'd be great singing. There'd be great participation. There would be fattened animals. It seemed like a pompous religious experience. It would have been a sight to see. Nevertheless, they have despised the Holy One of Israel. And lastly, the last description that God gives of their situation is they are utterly estranged. Interesting word. Utterly estranged. We don't use that word these days. What does it mean to be estranged? It means to be separated. This word is often used in the Old Testament to describe the aliens, the non-Israelites, the foreigners. It's as if God is saying to his people, you have reverted back to an alien status. Utterly, utterly separated. Utterly back to your status before you were redeemed. The theme of rebellion shows up in the book of Isaiah over and over again. In chap- Let me just read a few verses. In chapter 30, verse 9, God says, For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. Isaiah 48, 8, For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth you were called a rebel. Isaiah 66, 24, the very last verse of the book of Isaiah. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. Here's a point, dear friends. From the beginning of the end to the end of this book, we see the theme of rebellion and how God exposes this rebellion. He calls it uh, for what it is, even in his own children. It's one of the lessons we learn from this act of God exposing the rebellion of his people is that even those who call themselves children of God can fall into rebellion. We have a song that says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I wonder, my dear friend, if you recognize in you this particular inclination, we are prone to wonder if left to ourselves. Another lesson we learn is that there is so much more that happens inside of us when we rebel. It's not simply that we just act one act of disobedience. We, when we rebel, we act corruptly. We forsake the Lord. We despise the Holy One of of, of Israel. We become estranged from Him. Dear beloved, don't treat rebellion lightly. Don't say to yourself, ah, it's just a small matter. No one will know. Or I'll make up for God in some other ways later. Don't treat rebellion lightly. If you're not a Christian this morning, 
and have seen bad ways in which Christians sometimes, or more often than not, act, oh friend, here's what I want to tell you. God sees that too. God's people in the Old Testament have often failed to live as God called them, and God himself chose to expose their rebellion. But the rebellion of God's people does not give you an excuse to stay distant from God or to keep rejecting him. Notice before what audience God exposes the rebellion of his children. It's not in a closet. It's not even just within among the people of God. Verse 2 says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. In other words, God exposes the rebellion of his children before the entire universe. Oh, friends, our rebellion against God will be exposed cosmically. The stakes of our rebellion against God affect the entire creation. Our rebellion against our Maker is not a light matter. All creation witnesses our rebellion, and all creation will be affected by it. No wonder that the book of Isaiah closes with a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. But here, at the beginning of the book, the heavens and the earth are brought in as witnesses to see the rebellion of God's people. Don't treat this rebellion lightly. The heavens and the earth are called to pay attention to it. The Lord reveals the consequences of rebellion. The second point we see is that the Lord reveals the consequences of rebellion. From verse 5 to verse 9, we get five more pictures of what their rebellion does to them. God asks two questions. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? And in verse 5, then there's this picture of a body that is sick. Now, older saints, you know this experience. As you grow older, the body starts to, to decay. And as soon as one part starts decaying, you go to the doctor, try to fix it. Now, here's a picture of a body that is, there's no health in it whatsoever from, from head to toe. Nothing. Every part of the body is sick. Horrible. But to make things even worse, there's no one to bind up the wounds. There's no one to bind up the wounds. Look, the whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there's no soundness in it, but bruises, sores, raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. The rebellion of God's people has made them to be like a body that is sick in its entirety. And what's worse, they have no one to turn to to treat it. Why? Because the only one who could treat them is the very one they have rebelled against. And if they rebel against the Lord, they have no one else to turn to to treat them, their wounds. Later in Isaiah 53, we will hear about a servant, the servant of the Lord, who was innocent, and yet he was wounded. And he was wounded not because of his transgressions. He was wounded for the transgressions of the people of God, so that through his wounds, we might be healed. 
This is the, the hopelessness of a totally sick person not being able to turn to anyone for treatment except for God to God. But if they continue to rebel against the Lord, they have no one else to turn to for treatment. In verse 7, we see a second picture, this time of a nation that is desolate. It's both an illustration, but also a prophecy of what Israel will be. Verse 7, your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. Isaiah prophesies here what will happen at the time when Assyria will come and destroy the land. But the consequence of their rebellion is the destruction of their land with no one to protect them. And then there's three more pictures in verse 8. And the daughter of Zion is left, left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Imagine here three PowerPoint images. A booth in a vineyard. People, when they would go to harvest the vineyard, would tend the vineyard until the harvest was over. They would build up these, these booths so they could be protected in them. Once the harvest was over, they would go back to their homes and the booth would be left by itself. The only thing left in a vineyard would be this booth that stands desolate. The cucumber field had the same picture. Workers would work the cucumber field. They would, they would tend it until the harvest. Once the harvest was done, they would leave the lodge there, desolate. No one roaming around. And then finally, the picture of a besieged city. This is exactly the picture that we'll see later in Isaiah when the Assyrian army comes before Jerusalem. The point here is, here's a, a city who's not able to enjoy its freedom, a city who's not able to enjoy its resources, a city who's not able to enjoy its, its surroundings, its life, because it is besieged and it is on the brink of destruction. This is how God paints the consequences of the rebellion of His people. This is where rebellion against God takes us. In verse 9, we get a final picture of what rebellion deserves, but at the same time in verse 9, we also get a, a word of hope. Verse 9 says, If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What their deser rebellion deserved is to be like Sodom and Gomorrah. But the Lord had mercy. The Lord had mercy and planned to leave a few survivors, a remnant. And friends, the book of Isaiah is all about this remnant that God is going to protect, will, is going to keep. And despite the judgment that He is going to bring against them, the Lord will protect uh, a, a, a few survivors. And through that remnant, the Lord will actually restore His people. And not only will He restore His people through that remnant, the nations will be brought to the Lord. This is the first glimpse of hope in the, in the midst of a very dark introduction in this book of Isaiah. Total devastation is deserved. And it would have been total had God not left a few survivors. Friends, I wonder if you see here the mercy of God. While He gives numerous pictures of destruction that is coming upon those who rebel against His people, the Lord is also committed to save some. He doesn't, have to make, um, he doesn't have to make this exception, but He chooses to make it. And the rest of the book of Isaiah is the story of that tension between the destruction the Lord will bring against those who rebel against Him and the protection and salvation God brings through judgment to those 
who turn away from their rebellion. The Lord exposes the rebellion of his people. The Lord reveals the consequences of his people. The third point, the Lord reveals the useless solutions that they have tried out. Verses 10 through 15, we see another hearing. This time, God calls the people of Israel and their rulers to hear. In verse 2, he called heavens and earth. Now he calls the people and their rulers. And again, he calls them by the names of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's not talking about the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's talking about Israel. But he calls them by that name because that's what they have become and that's what they deserve. In verses 11 to 14, God declares the uselessness of their religious rituals. In other words, if we could, if we could summarize point three in one phrase, it is this. You can't cover rebellion with religious activity. You can't cover rebellion with religious activity. It won't work. Your feast, God says, your feast, your sacrifices, your burnt offerings, your fat calves and beasts that you bring, I don't delight in them. They are an abomination to me. I cannot endure it anymore. I have, they have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. In other words, their religious activity is not a solution to their rebellion. It's worse, dear friends. Not only you can't cover rebellion with religious activity, but when we try to cover rebellion with religious activity, we actually trigger God's displeasure. Friends, it is possible. It is possible that God could be tired and fed up and displeased and burdened up with our worship. Sometimes we come to church wondering and thinking, will worship be pleasing to me? Will I enjoy the gathering? Will I enjoy the, the festival, the singing, the, the, whatever we do when we're gathered together? God says here, it is possible that you may really enjoy it, and to me it would be a burden, an abomination. Do we recognize that, that when we gather to worship, it's not about whether or not we enjoy worship. It's not about whether or not we like it, whether or not it is pleasing to us. The big question is, is it pleasing to the Lord? It is possible that a very festive, a very engaged assembly could be an abomination to the Lord. God says that their religion has become so useless that when they pray to God, He will not listen to their prayers. Why? Because they are merely covering up their rebellious ways with their religion. Finally, the Lord offers a true way out of rebellion. The fourth point is the Lord offers a true way out of rebellion. In verses 16 through 18, we see the true way out, the solution that God gives. And this solution has... Two parts. First one is, give up your rebellion. Give up your rebellion. This is the human experience of what God calls man to turn away from his rebellion, from the various ways in which his rebellion is manifested. He's not saying, do more church. He's saying, give up your rebellion. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. This is not about physical washing. This is not even about 
baptismal washing. This is about the, this is a, the picture of, of them being un, dirty, filthy, needing to have a total restoration. The, new, the next few verbs unpack this, what the stopping involves. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. In other words, the actions that were a manifestation of rebellion, whatever that, those actions were, stop them. I might translate today these actions this way. If you are a person who keeps lying, put it off. If you are looking at porn, cut it off. If you are involved in a sexual relationship without being married or outside of marriage, break that relationship off. If you are dealing corruptly with others, cut it off. Whatever the evil deed, deed is, stop it. Turn away from it. Don't try to live a double life. And don't try to cover your rebellious ways with religion. Part of God's solution for our rebellion is to simply call us to stop it. But the human experience is not the only experience, is not the only part of this solution that God has for us. There is a divine experience. Look at the promise God gives in verse 18. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Friends, this is one of the most beautiful pictures of God's grace in the entire Old Testament. The picture of our sins being like scarlet, red like crimson, communicates the great guilt of our sin. God says, even though your sins make you exceedingly guilty before me, I will purify you. I will cleanse you. I will make you white as snow. Now what can turn our sins from being like a scarlet, being red, to be white as snow, so we can be pure as a wool? Our own turn away from sin does not cleanse us of the guilt of our past sins, nor does our turn from sin cleanse us of our future sins. Even though God calls us to turn away from rebellion, God promises the divine action that He will make us white as snow, no matter how deep our sins are. I love how Alec Motier in his commentary says, the, Lord promise, the Lord's promise is not only to deal with a stain of sin, but with a nature from which it springs. So that when He makes us white, He makes us white like snow. Because snow in its nature is white. This is not just a removal of the stain. This is a cleansing of the nature itself. Our text today does not give us the details of how this transformation takes place. We have to wait until chapter 53 in the book when we hear about the servant of the Lord who bore the iniquities of his people. God's promise, dear friends, to find a true abiding solution for our rebellion is placed before us. And God calls his people to respond in verse 19. He says, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat of the good of the land. This is the opposite of the picture of a, of a desolate land. God promises restoration. God promises that those who respond to him will survive the destruction that he will bring upon the land. But, but, if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 
Well, friends, here is the call that the Lord gives at the end of, of this passage. He calls us to respond. He calls His people to respond. Why will you continue to rebel? If you are willing and obedient, I will make you clean. Come to me. If you don't listen, you will be eaten by the sword. Oh, my dear friend, I wonder, I wonder what, is, what is your response to the Lord this morning? Are you willing to turn away from your rebellion? Throughout this text, God exposed the uselessness of a merely formal religion, the uselessness of an empty external religious act, while in our own day-to-day -day uh, actions and hearts, we show the true nature of our hearts. Our true religion is shown not merely in what we do in church, but what we do outside of church. In our day-to-day -day relationships and circumstances, you can be active in doing religious things and yet live a life of rebellion, carrying with you the guilt of your sins. And God says to His people, You, my people, you are rebellious. Come to me. Come to me. Why will you keep rebelling? Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you. Because even though our rebellion and sin deserves to bring us a treatment that you have given to Sodom and Gomorrah, nevertheless, in your mercy and grace, you still offer a call to turn to you. Father, we pray that this morning those who are still far from you who are still walking in their own rebellious ways, in their own ignorant ways, would hear this call and turn to you and respond. May we be a people who are cognizant of the desires and the ten tendencies of our own hearts to continue to wander off. Call us to yourself, O oh Lord. Help us to turn to you. Help us to trust in you. We pray that you would do in our own hearts that which we cannot do for ourselves. That you would take our sins that are red as scarlet and turn them to be white as snow. Purify us. Cleanse us, we pray. In the name of Christ. Amen.